0: The talk tonight is about equanimity or unconditional acceptance. And I'd like to begin with a poem by Louise Erdrich, who's a contemporary great Native American poet. Leave the dishes. Let the celery rot in the bottom drawer of the refrigerator. And an earthen scum harden on the kitchen floor. Leave the black crumbs in the bottom of the toaster. Throw the cracked bowl out and don't patch the cup. Don't patch anything. Don't mend. Buy safety pins. Don't even sew on a button. Let the wind have its way. Then the earth that invades as dust. And then the dead foaming up in gray rolls underneath the couch. Talk to them. Tell them that they are welcome. Don't keep all the pieces of the puzzles or the doll's tiny shoes and pairs. Don't worry who uses whose toothbrush or if anything matches at all. Accept one word to another or a thought. Excuse me. Pursue the authentic. Decide first what is authentic, then go after it with all your heart. Your heart, that place you don't even think of cleaning out, that closet stuffed with savage mementos. Don't sort the paper clips from screws from saved baby teeth or worry if we're all eating cereal for dinner again. Don't answer the telephone ever or weep over anything at all that breaks. Pink molds will grow within those sealed cartons in the refrigerator. (laughs) Accept new forms of life. (laughs) And talk to the dead who drift in through the screened windows, who collect patiently on the tops of food jars and books. Recycle Recycle the mail. Don't read it. Don't read anything Except what destroys the insulation between yourself and your experience or what pulls down or what strikes at or what shatters this ruse you call necessity. This insulation that is between us and our experience. You know, it's such a beautiful description of what we're trying to do in this meditation practice to understand what that insulation is. Last night, Christina talked about patience. And in um, the text, it's um, described, as she said, as a parami, one of the ten paramis. Uh, And In one of the texts I read, it's described as the mother, the mother of the paramis, patience. And equanimity is called the father of the paramis. And if you think of perhaps the child (laughs) that would come about between patience and equanimity, it would be freedom or awakening. I wanted to share um, an experience I had with one of these hidden Theodos, noble teachers, up in the Sagain Hills behind the monastery that I've been teaching at in Upper Burma in the last years. And I was um, probably the first woman teacher in Burma and had the opportunity to teach up at a monastery. It's like a 1,400-year-old monastery there. And the Sagain Hills are known as the spiritual heart of Burma. And if one does take the time to kind of roam a bit in those hills, one does find some of these amazing hidden beings. So I would say the Sado, who's quite hidden in a way, is probably the most happy human being I've ever met. And we had a number of discussions because one of these young people that lived with um, me for some years, since he was 15. He's now 24, and he's fluent in Burmese and translates for us in Burma. So it's pretty amazing to have him accompany me in these roamings through the hills and have someone to translate. And when the manager of the retreat, one of the managers, decided that um, he wanted to ask the said out about um, giving a talk on Donna, you know, in the West at the end of retreats, there's usually a talk about generosity or Donna, <clears throat> and we were running late, we were in a big hurry, um, and he said to me, this manager said to me, well, I don't, I don't want to go unless I can ask him this question, and I said, well, that's all we'll do, we'll just ask him this question, we don't have to do anything else, and we kind of rushed there, came in, bowed, and just to give you the context you know, they don't give Donna talks in Burma. You know, they don't, you know, you kind of grow up with understanding all this. It's like you breathe it generosity in the air, like <clears throat> from being a child. So th- this friend explained to this Sado, um, all about how we were having this Western retreat and, in Burma and that he was going to give a talk about generosity. And did he have anything to share with us about his understanding of generosity. And he started just laughing. You know, he's just laughing, and he's like, he's just so animated. He's really like a kindred spirit of mine. He's so funny. He's like, gets up, and he's like, you want to know about Donna? And it's like, and he ran over to this altar, and he grabbed a bunch of oranges, and he put them in this manager's lap, and he said, here, here's Donna. You want to know about Donna? Take these oranges. And he laughs and laughs and laughs. And then he's like, you want to know about Donna? Well, and he goes up to the altar, grabs a bunch of bananas and throws them at this friend. You know, I mean, it was so funny. <laughs> like, Here's is, this is Donna. And then tears started just coming down his cheeks. He was laughing so hard. And he said, look up at the roof. That's Donna. And he said, look at your body. You know, he said, you wouldn't have even been born a human if you hadn't practiced a lot of generosity. It's like your body is so precious. It's so precious to be human, you know. And he's laughing and laughing like it's so obvious. You know, it's just like just so much fun. You know, and it's it was so um, interesting to to just have somebody teaching through uproarious laughter like that. Um, and I think that. Sometimes we forget, um, in the wisdom practice, that it's all about receiving. It's all about receiving how life is. And so that being able to cultivate a receptive attention, so that we truly are able to be still enough to receive sound or silence, to be truly still enough to really receive the life of a breath. And, you know, we're doing it with taste, with body sensations, with touch, with thoughts, with emotions. We often forget that um, the deepest spiritual emotion is really gratitude. You know, and this this happy, say it else, tears, I always feel the joy is coming from also just this deep place of gratitude and understanding. Uh, so what we practice is being able to receive and then connect deeply with each moment of our, our experience. And if we can connect, we see that we don't have to do anything with what's happening, and this is what's so challenging. If if fear arises, can we really not have to do anything with it, but truly connect with it? Because if you do connect with it, then the fear is going to come and go by itself. Because truly, everything will come and go by itself. And it, this doesn't mean being inert <laughs> or passive, you know. And I just read um, somebody gave me a. Tenth anniversary special, old Calvin and Hobbes um, cartoon collection, and there was just one strip that was so funny because Calvin was sitting in front of the television, and then was acting out this kind of um, utter passivity. He he just kind of described to his you know stuffed animal, his imaginary friend. He was saying, "Yes, you have to have your hot ass, hot, your eyes halfway down, and you have to drool a little." You know, and you have to stick your stomach out. And he was doing this whole description of being completely inert, just vegging out. Now, that's not mindfulness practice. (laughs) You know, we might want to go there. But, you know, this this ability to to be relaxed and spontaneously present and still is this incredible marriage of patience and equanimity. And the other little detail besides connection, be- besides letting experience be, is really not taking life personally, not taking the fear personally, not taking, if the breath is shallow, to not take that personally, to not need it to be other than it is. <clears throat> so the idea is that we start um, allowing, you know, each step to be as it is, to let despair be as it is, to just let whatever is appearing in our life to just be. And this is equanimity or unconditional acceptance. This morning we talked about a little bit about continuity. And what allows continuity to happen is this understanding that each moment is equal. So that we don't value <clears throat> um, sitting on the cushion more than opening the door here and walking through the door into the other room. You know, or that we don't value um <clears throat> taking a step in walking meditation over um, receiving a bite of salad. And when we think that one experience is gonna be more enlightening than the other, you know, that—that that is delusion. And then we won't pay attention to it fully, as Christine has been saying. We lose that ability to be wholehearted because we think we can't awaken through sadness. We think we have to get rid of the sadness to be free. Or we think we have to get rid of the knee pain to be free, or that we have to get rid of sleepiness to be free, you know, and the meditation practice, what we start to realize is that it's not about getting rid of things to be free, in fact, there's less and less need to get rid of anything, and this is the transparency of equanimity, it's that, it's the sweetness of equanimity you start feeling like, yeah, you can walk mindfully down to lunch because one doesn't have to be in a hurry to do anything. One doesn't have to rush into the meditation hall to finally get to sit to maybe you know, have a free moment because if you really just walk carefully into the hall, those are the free moments. So again, in terms of um, a receptivity, you know, we we know when we start feeling more liberated when we can not only receive the movement of the breath and and that truly is a teacher noticing it begin, live, end is how we learn to let the sadness begin, live, end or to allow the knee pain to begin, live, and yes, end. One of the um, descriptions of awakening, full awakening, that I have taken refuge in over the years is um, a phrase that I learned from a teacher from Burma, Mahasi Saito. And he described it as full enlightenment, as no more desire for existence and no more desire for non-existence. And that's so pure. It's like if we're measuring how (laughs) free we are, you know, that's the description basically of the wanting mind and the non-wanting mind, the aversion or fear. No more desire for existence of becoming me or my or mine and no more desire for not wanting to be here. And when we start to investigate these two aspects of <clears throat> suffering, um, we can see that they're just temporary moments of a separate self. You know, and that this is the encouragement to really look at what is this insulation <clears throat> between our self and our experience. It is these um, hidden temporary moments of identification with wanting and not wanting. That's all a separate self is. All a separate self is, is our attempt to control. And anytime we're attempting to control, it will only take the form of grasping, not seeing clearly, wanting what isn't happening, (laughs) and not wanting what isn't happening. One of the things I love about the Buddha's teaching is that it is that simple. It's not always simple to see that. When we're lost in it, sometimes we suffer so much. But it is that simple that we are attempting to control what isn't controllable. That's how we suffer. And to realize that that it's temporary. It's not a permanent state. So, this happy side of, ha 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 ha, do you want to know about Donna? You know, what, is, what does that mean? You know, and it, it means that whatever's happening, we no longer have to be limited by any experience that's happening. We no longer have to be limited by our, our desire for things to be other than they are. There will be times when, yeah, we want things to be other than we are. they are, but we don't have to be limited by that desire. We don't have to be limited by not wanting to be here. We don't have to be limited by all the things we think we need that aren't happening. <laughs> <clears throat> This is a poem by the poet William Stafford, who um, is another Native American poet um, who isn't contemporary. This is called, For My Young Friends Who Are Afraid. There is a country to cross. You will find in the corner of your eye, in the quick slip of your foot, air far down, a snap that might have caught. And maybe for you, for me, a high-passing voice that finds its way by being afraid. That country is there for us, carried as it is crossed. What you fear will not go away. It will take you into yourself and bless you and keep you. That's the world, and we all live there. You know, to realize that we can find our way by allowing ourselves to feel the fear. You know, instead of having to get rid of the fear, that we find our way by going through the experience of fear. What you fear will not go away, it will take you into yourself and bless you. You know, that's it's so remarkable to really get that sense that that's how it works. I have a um, a friend that's also a student over some years that uh, came to a retreat last year <clears throat> in Massachusetts, and he has a very busy life, kids, and eking out the 10 days for this retreat every year is so hard for him. You know, he just barely pulls it together. And this year he even called and he said, I don't think I'm going to make it, and I was just to, like, try. And on his way to the... Um, Retreat. He had to do a number of errands, and he um, somehow his wife's computer fell out of the car, and he ran over it. Like, he ran over his com- his wife's computer, and then his car blew up. You know, like just incredible obstacles. You know, on this way to this retreat. Uh, you know, and he got there a basket, <laughs> and a lot of fear started to come up during the retreat, and. You know what we all do with it. It's like we try to talk ourselves out of it. We rationalize it. Then we analyze it. We try to figure out where it came from, why it's here. And um, in that retreat, he had this experience of, he said, finally, he just got backed into the corner. And he said, well, maybe I should try being mindful of it. I mean, how many times do we do that? You know, we do everything we can not to be mindful of it. And then if we're lucky, if we're fortunate, it will occur to us that maybe we can try to work, you know, be with it. And uh, this is equanimity. It's this acceptance that it's happening. And it's like he said, it was like he fell into it and into this experience. It was such a moment of awakening for him. Really, it's like he awakened through this experience of opening to the fear. And we do that. Don't think that you haven't done that. It's like we, we, we do it, and and then we have to struggle again with our resistance to what's difficult. <clears throat> it's okay. The art of meditation is learning how to skillfully... And more and more wisely move back and forth between um, a pure concentration and moment-to-moment concentration. So pure concentration is a kind of seclusion and a protection for us. And it's like the compromise in Vipassana practice is this anchoring with one thing. And usually we encourage that to be the movement of the breath, but for some people that might be sound or the body, um, if the breath isn't so stable or neutral as an anchor. But the ability to, to say <clears throat> you're sitting and you're with the breath, um, pure concentration would be if a knee pain arose, even if it called the attention, you'd stay with the breath. If a sound arose... You'd stay with the breath as much as you can. Even if the attention gets called out to something, you go back to the breath, go back to the breath. That's seclusion. That's protection. And the goal of that, and you can hear Christina and I emphasize how important that is. It's like you're not opening to -to moment-to-moment change. You're not opening to that vast range of Sight, smell, touch, taste, you know, uh, thought, emotion, w- that flow of experience is what the Buddha called dukkha. That moment to moment change. The second foundation of mindfulness, the emphasis on pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling. This is really interesting because this isn't emotion. This is a mental feeling that arises with each moment of consciousness. And again, it's the Buddha taught that each moment of consciousness, whether it's seeing, smelling, touching, tasting, thinking, um, is accompanied by a pleasant, unpleasant or neutral feeling when we start to grasp that world of change that we're born into, you know, we start to see what is meant by dukkha, the unreliability of how things are. So the wisdom practice or the mindfulness practice or momentary concentration is learning how to stabilize the attention we come into retreat or we are in our day-to-day life and we see how easily we get scattered <clears throat> and thoughts pull us away. We can't see them clearly. So the idea is that we stabilize, seclude, exclude, so that also we can open to moment-to-moment change. And that's the mindfulness practice. It's called momentary concentration. Uh, and <clears throat> you all know it happens. It's like one notices a sound, a body sensation, a thought, another body sensation, usually we will get lost in a thought at some point. And we re-anchor, we stabilize again. Sometimes if the attention is in balance with mindfulness and concentration and equanimity, we don't have to re-stabilize there'll be a thought a body sensation a sound we might get lost in a thought but we don't have to go back to the breath because the attention is so stable it just can it doesn't have to exclude it just flows at some point we'll get lost in a thought it's okay we either restabilize with the breath or not <clears throat> so you can see the practice goes back and forth between that seclusion and exclusion which is skillful means sometimes and it's not a regression you know sometimes I think people will think well I'm above being with the breath." you know <laughs> you know that somehow it's a lower thing to do when really it's all just skillful means that's the art of being able to know when to stabilize and be still and quiet in that way and when to open up and let it flow and often we're doing a mixture. We're doing the stabilizing, opening, stabilizing, opening. The goal of the mindfulness practice is wisdom. The goal of pure concentration practice is tranquility, stillness, ease. One of the things that's really important to understand is that sometimes we'll be having insight and we don't necessarily like the insight. So say we're, <laughs> we're, we're opening up and we're letting things flow <clears throat> and we get a sense of how unreliable experience is. That's insight. But sometimes we have aversion to it and we don't even know that we're having aversion to insight. You know, this is really important. Sometimes people are having insights A lot of times we're having insight and we don't even recognize that we're having it because we don't like what we're seeing. (laughs) When I was doing a retreat, um, a three-month retreat in 1984 with Sayadaw Upandita, um, he was really hard on me and I would go to him every morning. We had to see him every day. Um, And he asked me a question about being with the movement of the breath. And he asked me, if, you know, when I was noticing the rising movement, if I noticed any thoughts happening. And <clears throat> I didn't really like interviews with him, and I used to used to think up the answer that I thought he was going to want to hear, rather than really look at what my experience. And so I really wanted to get out of the room as quickly as possible, and I said, um, no, there's no thoughts. And... <laughs> He looked at me like I was an idiot, you know. And I realized, wrong answer. (laughs) Whoops, you know. And I went back to sit, you know, and I started looking. And, you know, in actual fact, the in-breath or rising movement is quite long. And if you're doing moment-to-moment awareness, there usually will be a few thoughts that happen in that time span. It doesn't mean that you have to get rid of them or... You know, sometimes there might not be, but generally speaking, if you start letting go of control, and just let the flow happen, you will probably notice more thought. And sometimes we will even get lost in thought, but the attention is flexible enough to just bounce back. It stabilizes. There isn't a fear of getting lost in thought when the attention is more in balance. And then if one tends to get lost in the thought, and if one is lost, then one stabilizes again. So there isn't a fear. You see, the more one doesn't think that one or the other of these kinds of practices are above or (laughs) below each other, just like we don't have to think that sitting is more important than walking or that eating is more important than sleeping. You know, it's just like when one starts to just recognize that each experience is equal, And that stabilizing is as important as opening. Then it's just, again, a matter of skillful means. And it's really impersonal. It's like we often make an interpretation about ourselves. You know, you can do it about anything, you know, but it's just amazing how we can think that we're somehow failing at the practice, you know, if we can't do whatever. You know, it's so interesting. So equanimity is very sweet in that it starts to allow us to just be with how things are and to apply the appropriate balance with what's happening. Stabilize or open. One of the things to investigate a little bit in relationship to this is that we tend to um, prefer at times the ease and the seclusion of the concentration. And we don't always like that wisdom tells me I'm nothing. I mean, developing a taste for emptiness sometimes isn't, what we thought we were bargaining for. And again, we tend to have tendencies. You know, some of us might tend to like the idea of interconnectedness or love, but not wisdom or emptiness. And some of us might like em- emptiness and wisdom and not tend to like the connectedness of love. Um, so it's really interesting to see how I found for myself and noticing many people over the years that um, if, you, if you just <laughs> sit and walk um, it'll balance you you know because if you just kind of surrender to the practice it's, it just will inevitably balance us if we start picking and choosing well I want to do it you know majorly this way and avoid the walking because we like sitting or we like sitting I mean, walking, and we avoid the sitting. That's when we start to see how we kind of go out of balance by following our preferences. Um, then we we start reinforcing, actually, tendencies, and it's not so um, healthy. In regard to <clears throat> understanding a little bit more about what a separate self is what this insulation between us and our experience just to say again that um, allowing the reactive mind rather than trying to get rid of it to me is a huge step yeah. in the practice and, and, and it's equanimity that allows us to do this you know, so for example um, <laughs> If you notice yourself say you've noticed yourself wanting something, you know, maybe you've been sitting for 20 minutes, and the first five minutes were delightful, and then the ne- you know the, you just you know, you, then the next minutes you're pretending that you don't really mind that it's gone. You know I don't really mind. you know like we, we pretend we're economists, you know and then you kind of just can't fake it anymore, because really one is wanting it back. Now, the moment when we can just be really honest and say, yeah, wanting, that's what's happening in the present moment. And it's okay. It's like it's, it's just wanting, and we allow that experience of wanting. It arises and passes, and one isn't identified with it, and that's what melts the ice. That's what thaws us. If we think we have to get rid of that wanting to be free, <clears throat> then we're pushing it away. There's aversion <laughs> to the wanting. And we've got a double, double amount of suffering. And then if, you know, it just goes on and on. And that's, that's we tighten, we control. And those are just moments of controlling. <coughs> um, so it, this whole aspect of not wanting, wanting, it's really the purity of the mindfulness and the equanimity to keep allowing us to open to how it is, and that it's okay to have these experiences. We're trying to be fully enlightened before we even experience what it's really like to be human. When I was sitting last month, or was it two months ago? Yeah, two months ago. It was in New England when um, the ponds were still frozen and there was a lot of snow in the ground and at a certain point, it started to warm up, and it would feel like it was going to become spring and warm, and so it would melt a bit, and the edges of the pond would melt, Um, and it was, also, I've been living in Honolulu uh, in winters for 23 years, and coming back to New England in in the winter was a bit of a shock, you know, so my body also doesn't really prefer frozen snow and frozen ice and when it would start to melt I felt like my heart and body were like the body of spring and the body of that frozen water and my whole body would just go I would just get so delighted and this joy would come up and I'd kind of lay by the water and listen to the water you know instead of just dead everything Um, and I would think spring's here (laughs) or it's just gonna fly right into summer and um, it would snow and freeze up again and then you know it would melt a bit and then it would just freeze again and it's such a teaching there in New England in the spring because it freezes and thaws and freezes and thaws and freezes and thaws and it's so much like the practice we'll have these times where it'll just feel so pure and you know we're invincible and we can't imagine that we could ever get caught in anything, you know, and that's when we count, you know, uh, how many days are left, and we regret that we didn't sign up for a month retreat, you know, it's, it's too short, I don't have enough time, then it's like, well, I'll sign up for a longer retreat, you know, and we just, we just want to sit forever, and then freezing, contracting happens, and it's the worst sitting we've ever had, and, um, we know how many days are left, right? And, you know, it's like, well, we only have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. For, well, you know, I think I can manage that. But it's just like we can flip in one minute from having the best sitting to the worst sitting. And it's, it's just like it's so amazing. And it's important for you who are new in this room to know that everybody knows how many days are left. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just you <laughs> Resistance is slippery, you know when I, I I was sitting this time I was taking a closer look at it, and I'd be having these sittings that just would be so quiet and would feel so pure. And it would be this tiny distant thought that would come in, I can't take this anymore. And it would seem so neutral in a way. It was so distant and light. And yet the power of it would be so strong. And I would also know that most of the time it was time to get up and walk. You know, that it was really time to kind of walk, build up some energy so that I could be mindful of that thought and not succumb to it. You know, so resistance is really slippery. And resistance will find, it's almost like resistance and doubt finds um, the key to what we're going to fall for. It's like you might have a very different thought that seduces you than my thought. But the nature of the thought is the same, which is that it will create self-doubt, doubt in your practice, doubt in everything um, when, it's, when it's hard. And that's the time to head for the breath. Or, you know, to find an ease in the walking. Or to just open up and receive the beauty of this place. Stare at a deer or a turkey for a while. The um, near enemy of equanimity is indifference. Um, And it'll feel like we're accepting... But in actual fact, we're disconnected. We're not receiving the experience. I have a, a five-year-old great-niece who um, likes to pretend that she's accepting. And she's so transparent. I, I just love watching her grow up because she's so obvious when she's being indifferent and not caring versus really genuinely not you know, being clear and genuinely equanimous. One of my favorite moments with her was it was pouring rain outside, and when I visit her house, I tend to leave most of my things in the car and I only bring a few things in, um, but that means i 'm tend to be going out to the car and getting this and that and she 's very attached to me, so Any time I go outside the car, you know she 's with me with kind of she likes to go in the bathroom with me, she likes to watch me take showers she just really is at that stage where she likes to do everything with me, and um, and I know, she knows that her mother doesn't want her to be doing some of the things, so, like, the other day, I went into the shower, and she snuck in at the last moment, and she said, don't tell my mother that I'm in here, and she's doing this a lot now, like, don't tell my mother that we're doing this, or, you know, and I'm like, but, Brenna, you know, I actually like your mother. <laughs> you know, she can't quite get like, that I'm actually you know, going to care how her mother feels. You know, she's at that age where she's trying to find her independence. Uh, so one day it's pouring rain. Her parents are right in the living room. And they, they yell out, Brenna, you can't go outside to the car. And so we're at the door, and I'm about to go out. And she looked at me, and she really, with pleading eyes, she made me squat down to her eye level. And she said, Who cares? <laughs> and it looked so equanimous. I mean, it was so close to perfect, you know. It's, and I said, Well, clearly you don't care. <laughs> and I don't really care. But, you know, there's two people in this room that really care. You know, and it was so interesting because because I was able to receive that from her, there was another experience later in the day where she said it, who cares? But it was really, it was pure. And, and look at yourself at times. We often have mixed motivation. And it's okay. It's like sometimes it's pure, and sometimes we're really off, but we're slippery, and we're pretending that we're not. Uh, and it requires just this uh, continual, gentle honesty. That's what the practice is all about. It's just the more and more honesty about what really is happening. And when we can be that honest, we can be with it. And it's never, you know. We all know this, but more and more we just see that it's really that resistance to, say, like the fear. We try everything we can, and then finally we go, oh, it's fear. There's that honesty. We go through it. It's okay. And we learn. And that's that sweetness of acceptance or equanimity. So let's sit for a minute. May we continue to receive the blessing of acceptance of what is.